Welcome back to Material World, where we dig into the stories behind all the things you spend your money on. I'm Jenny Kaplan. I cover all the things you drink and smoke for Bloomberg News. And I'm Lindsay Rupp. I cover all the stores in the mall for Bloomberg. There's been a lot of talk lately about where all that stuff in the mall actually comes from. President Trump is pushing the Buy American movement to a new level and is calling for manufacturing to come back to the U.S. My administration's policies and regulatory reform, tax reform, trade policies will return significant manufacturing jobs to our country. Everything's going to be based on bringing our jobs back, the good jobs, the real jobs. They've left. As we explored in an earlier episode about patriotic marketing, if given the choice, most Americans would prefer to buy products that are made in the U.S., even though factors like price and quality usually outweighs the place of production in terms of this decision. But for various reasons that we'll get into today, a lot of stuff just isn't made here anymore. If you're looking for clothes made in the U.S., you're going to have to look pretty hard. Only 2% of clothes sold in America are actually made here, and that includes stuff like military uniforms that are contractually required to be made in the USA. America used to produce a lot of commercially made clothing. The old Manhattan Garment District is actually just a few avenues away from where we're sitting right now. These days, New York is still known as one of the fashion capitals of the world. But back in the 19th century, and even up to a few decades ago, it was also a production hub. The company that makes Ivanka Trump's clothing line, for instance, actually started out making coats in the garment district in New York back in the 1950s and 60s. But now they make everything for her line in China and Vietnam. So what changed? We asked Professor Pietro Rivoli, a Georgetown economist, to explain. Professor Rivoli literally wrote the book on this. In the early 2000s, she traced the life of her t-shirt from a Texas cotton field to a Chinese factory and back to a U.S. store. She used that journey to explain the global economy. About in the, the very late 1980s, what started to happen is that U.S. apparel companies, uh, you know, retailers as well as brands, they started to uh, to outsource some of their apparel production you know, to countries that had lower wages. But this outsourcing was very limited by U.S. trade policy. So we had a number of aspects of our trade policy served as very effective barriers um, to that outsourcing and very effective barriers to getting the apparel back in to the United States. So we had we had high tariffs and we had quantitative limits or quotas. So basically we had laws that sort of kept the jobs here in the United States protected by trade policy. This was uh, following the Second World War uh, all the way, well, some people would say it continues today, but there's been a gradual liberalization um, starting in particular in the late 80s. Deregulation ended the protections keeping jobs in the U.S., and it also got rid of the barriers keeping foreign imports out. The biggest barrier keeping imported apparel um, out of the United States was the arrangement that we had for decades, um, you know, put in place by, um, by Richard Nixon, called the multi-fiber arrangement. And that was a, a, a set of quantitative limits 
on our imports of apparel. Now, the, the, the quotas began to be phased out in 1995, but the phase-out was very slow, and most of them didn't disappear till 2005, and then we kept them on China until 2008. So, you know, really the way to understand this is that, um, you know, this was an industry that was protected by trade barriers, you know, until very, very recently. Like many industries, apparel's gone global. Your shirt might have been designed in the U.S., stitched and packaged overseas, and then marketed and sold right back here. It's not like companies like Gap just shipped a bunch of sewing jobs to women in the third world. Since the U.S. stopped making clothes in a big way, other countries have developed advanced technology as well as the labor infrastructure. The history, you know, as it goes through the United States to moving overseas, you start looking at who were the first movers and who started moving things, um, you know, at what time. That's John Belay, CEO of custom suit maker Not Standard. They made the Texas Donald Jr. and Eric Trump ward the inauguration. You know, back in the 1960s, it was 95% was made here. In the 90s, it was 50-50. And then in you know, current day, I think we're, we're down to 3% of manufacturing for clothing is, is in the United States. And when that started in the 80s, they were moving overseas for lower costs. I think Gap was one of them uh, very publicly that looked for ways uh, to leverage different factories overseas and look for ways to make uh, products more cost efficient to the consumer. Um, and what that led to was it led to a lot of the global markets becoming better and better and more specialized, not only in the construction, but in the fabric mills. So you had for the first time, you had a big emergence in global fabric mills that was the other half of the, other half of the equation when it came into the cost input of the labor. And so what that you know, started was a trend in people outsourcing. And that trend in people outsourcing um, sort of grew you know, at full speed through the 90s into the late 2000s, where you know, I think it takes a shift in modern day in that people and the overseas manufacturers want to be automated. They want to be technologically advanced. So what was once a price war uh, is now a move towards automation and technology. And because this has been, you know, something that uh, other countries have been investing in so heavily, you know, over the, you know, the past three decades, call it, um, they have a great leg up on just making that conversion from, you know, a highly labor intensive industry to a highly automated industry. And we're watching that happen in real time. We're watching massive um, investments in capital machinery, watching government subsidies go into a lot of these production lines. And we're watching just a further level um, of advancement come out of a lot of these um, other global facilities. So when we're talking about fit and the ways that we are going to be able to have autonomy over the pattern and ways we're going to be able to change a garment so it fits a customer, that highest level of technology has been developed in factories outside of the United States. So when you take a step back and you look at where the competitive advantages are, um, it's not only cost, but it's really the investment in capital equipment that has been made elsewhere that really makes you know, those factories have a superior level on the, uh, on the pecking order. Not Standard is making a small line in the U.S. John Belay says it's great branding. But making more of their suits here would mean Not Standard would have to sacrifice the customization and fit its customers demand. The costs and benefits of manufacturing in the U.S. versus abroad are in flux. President Donald Trump and the Republicans in Congress have proposed tax changes that could change the state of play. As part of a tax reform plan championed by Speaker of the House Paul Ryan, the corporate rate companies pay the government would be slashed from 35 percent to 20 percent. 
But that's not all good news for apparel companies. Lindsay's covered this extensively, so I decided to take her out for a free coffee to get her thoughts on what's going on. tax rate down to 20% from 35%, which I think everybody in the corporate world agrees we want that. But to pay for it, they're proposing that we institute this new border-adjusted tax. So uh, right now the way it works is anything you bring in from overseas, anything you import that you then sell in the U.S., you can deduct that as part of your cost of goods when you file your taxes. So you're really only paying taxes on your profits if you're a business. Under this new border-adjusted plan, you wouldn't be able to deduct the cost of goods of anything you import. Well, that's a big problem if you're in basically any kind of retail in the U.S., but it's especially a problem if you're an apparel manufacturer in the U.S. We only make about 2% of the apparel here that's actually sold in the U.S., so almost every piece of clothing that you buy is imported, and this new tax proposal would make that a lot more expensive and likely these retailers would pass along that cost to you, the consumer. So whatever you're buying will be, the estimate is about 20% more expensive. Uh, so this tax proposal has really divided the American business community. On the one side, you have people who are net exporters who make a lot of stuff here and then sell it overseas. They're in favor of this tax proposal and they're part of the American Made Coalition. On the other side, you have retailers and retail trade groups mainly who are against this tax proposal because they're net importers. They bring in a lot of things to the U.S. that they've made overseas and then they sell it here. Regardless of whether this tax proposal passes, there already are some companies that are making their clothing here. American Giant, famous for its comfy hoodies, makes its clothes mainly in the Carolinas. CEO Bayard Winthrop says he's proving naysayers wrong. So, you know, if you think about the apparel world in general over the last 40 years, what's happened is those businesses that at one point in time were were making um, great American-made products, uh, primarily in the Carolinas, and were selling those at prices that the average consumer could afford, um, and they were getting kind of the best value, the best quality in the market back then. But over the last 40 years, those businesses have started to invest in huge retail store footprints, and what came along with that was massive inventory bets, um, many of which don't work out well. So you have to have huge clearance sales at the end of every season and the end of every year to get rid of all that inventory, which requires um, basically minimizing the amount that you're investing in product and quality to pay for that big store rollout and those big clearance sales and those big marketing budgets to support that. And so that, that paradigm, that business paradigm, basically made it impossible to have American manufacturing be... Um, efficient um, or scalable or viable. And so the last 40 years, you've seen that massive exodus to manufacturing overseas. But if you stop for a minute and say that that model is broken and customers are prioritizing something different, you can unlock again uh, scalable, high-quality American manufacturing. And so that's what American Giants set about to do, basically, was to say, we're not going to invest in a huge store rollout. We're not going to invest in big marketing. Instead, we're going to have faith in the fact that consumers really care about quality, really care about American made, and they'll carry the banner for you if you execute in that really, really well. And so in our case, that started out with uh, our sweatshirt and trying to build 
a great American-made sweatshirt again and price it fairly uh, so that the customer was not being asked to make an exception for American-made, but rather could just make an assessment on whether this was a great product and whether it fit well and whether it was a great value. Um, We decided to do that entirely American-made. The cotton that we uh, start with comes primarily from Delta and Southeastern cotton farms and then makes its way up through ginning and yarning and dyeing and finishing uh, and cutting and sewing of that product um, almost entirely in the Carolinas. There's a little bit that comes from outside of that. Um, it's really a, uh, it's a, it's a very sort of geographically close supply chain, which allows us to stay very close to it and very much on top of the quality and the, and the control elements of that uh, production process. Bayard thinks the high cost of labor in the U.S. means it's ripe for innovation in manufacturing technology. When you go to um, places like you know, China and India and you go into from Bangladesh, Pakistan, um, the cost of, of labor is so low there that it actually oftentimes delays investing in technological advancement because you, you have such a cheap access to such cheap labor that you can just throw people at the problem. Um, domestically, staying on top of investments in technology and manufacturing engineering approaches is really important um, to stay viable. And that is something that we certainly do. If you go into our, our sewing facilities, for example, I, I would argue they're among the most modern and well-engineered in the country. Um, so we do put a lot of energy and time into thinking about how we stay uh, very competitive from an efficiency and a technological standpoint. But I think that's only really part of the solution. I think you have to bring uh, innovative thinking and modern thinking to the entire business approach. The, the biggest unlock, I think, is really believing that um, most of the apparel companies have become not manufacturers of apparel, but, but real estate businesses and marketing companies. And they've really become disconnected to the product itself. And I think that the, the profound change that's happened is that customers are returning back to really caring about product again. You see that everywhere. You see it in apparel. You see it in coffee culture. You see it in farmer's markets. You see this sort of shift that customers are really saying, I care about the stuff that I am purchasing. I want to understand where it's coming from, how it's made, um, whether it's good quality or not. And they're prioritizing that as customers. And with the Internet, they're able to really go find and support the brands that are reflecting those values. So uh, I think staying on top of the technological part of it, uh, making sure that your manufacturing engineering is best in class is important, uh, but it's only a piece of a broader set of decisions you need to make to have American manufacturing be competitive and viable again. They're not the only company to make their clothes in the U.S. A lot of you have probably heard of American Apparel, for example. The challenges facing clothing retailers are pretty steep regardless of where the clothing's made. Lindsay helped me understand what retailers are up against. American apparel companies are facing a lot of challenges right now. You're probably not going to the mall as much as you used to. You probably shop online a lot more than you used to. There are more people selling clothes than ever before. And actually, the one thing that's really 
fallen in price in the last few decades is clothing. So you're, you're spending less money on clothing than you ever have before because clothes have just gotten so much cheaper. And ever since the recession, American consumers are super price conscious. Everyone wants a deal. Everything's on sale. So it's really difficult for apparel retailers in the U.S. to you know, sell things at full price. They're facing more competition. They have a lot of expenses. So then to be faced with this border-adjusted tax uh, is kind of another blow to an already really challenging environment for them. You know, they, it's like one more nail in the, the coffin that's sort of being built of American retailers. And you have, you know, there are retail companies that have made clothing in the U.S. that haven't made it. So think about American Apparel, which went into bankruptcy twice. It was bought by Gildan, which is a Canadian company, and they're going to continue to make some goods in America, but they're also going to start making stuff overseas because it's cheaper, and they're going to sell those clothes overseas because they need to bring in more profits. It's unclear what role making their clothes in America actually played in American Apparel's demise. That company had a lot of issues, but... I mean, you can't name very many companies that make their clothing in America, right? Which I think is a testament to how difficult it is to compete in this industry already, let alone with higher labor costs uh, and manufacturing costs. Even if American companies could bring production back, Professor Rivoli isn't sure it would be a good thing for the U.S. If you look at a border-adjusted tax, you know the the bottom line is that you are going to make it cheaper to export and more expensive to import. A significant effect would be higher apparel prices, and that would reduce demand, and that would reduce employment in other parts of this chain. So, for example, if apparel becomes more expensive, then there are fewer jobs in the apparel retail industry. And You know, our retail industry has for decades employed more people than the apparel industry. So you might get a few apparel jobs, but then you would lose the retail jobs. So as a tactic for increasing employment in the overall apparel complex, I wouldn't be optimistic about the effects of the border adjustment tax. In the United States, um, we are not going to be able to win the fight on the basis of the quantity of low-skill labor. And so what we're going to attract here are the types of manufacturing that rely on technology and high skills. We produce autos in the United States. We produce aircraft. We produce high-tech uh, machinery. But the production... The sewing of apparel, you know, is not a very good fit with our human resources. The best chance for apparel manufacturing to return to the United States would be automation and robotics. A number of universities are working on, you know, automating the production of apparel. So to the extent that you can, you know, replace that that person who has to sit on the sewing machine with their foot on a pedal with some kind of machine or technology, certainly there would be lots of reasons to, to bring that production closer to the final customer. But for American giants Bayard Winthrop, that argument doesn't really hold water. 
I think it's, I think it's, I think it's an absolutely nonsensical comment. I mean, I, I think that, that that sounds like somebody that is giving you an answer that, that is uh, convenient for them because they're not going to be bringing apparel jobs back to the U.S. I, I can tell you that if you come to Middlesex, North Carolina or Wendell and talk to any of the operators on the floor, what they'll tell you is, uh, thank God that we've got an employer that's investing in the United States and that uh, these are jobs that are desperately needed in places like Nash County where you have unemployment rates that are indexing higher than the national average. So there is, there's a huge need in the U.S. for skilled manual labor jobs. Um, there's a lack of those jobs. And, and so I think that um, – and anyone that tells you it's different than that I think is just not, is not telling you a true story. Uh, but, but as it relates to the administration, I think there's a couple things that are happening that are interesting and worth paying attention to. I would urge the administration to be focused on things that are leveling the playing field but also are requiring uh, American businesses to, to innovate and to, and to think about how they can – once that, that playing field has been leveled, how they can outcompete uh, our international counterparts, which I'm a believer in, right? I'm a big optimist about the viability of U.S. manufacturing as long as we're on an, evil, an even playing field. And I think if we can achieve that, there's, there's good days ahead for U.S. manufacturing. I'm cautiously hopeful for this administration because I think they're talking about it a lot and they're raising the awareness about it. I just hope that we move away from some of the uh, sort of protectionist rhetoric that seems to be coming out of D.C. As you're seeing with American Giant, you know, we have a business that is performing financially better than many or most of our public apparel company peers with a domestic manufacturing base. That, that's a pretty profound change. And I think the internet and technology is really liberating a lot of that change. We, we're in an interesting moment for the next, you know, the, the, next, the next coming change in U.S. manufacturing. No matter what happens with tax reform, it seems like there are some pretty steep hurdles to bringing the U.S. back to its apparel production levels of 40 or 50 years ago. We haven't been investing in the technology, factories, infrastructure, or employee training necessary for these jobs. Not Standards' John Belay pointed out that the government would need to invest heavily in training and education to make American manufacturing successful. The companies that do make clothes here are relatively small, and they make pretty simple stuff like hoodies and sweatpants. They also sell American-made products at higher prices. It would be tough to get people to pay more for every single t-shirt. Not Standard and American Giant are right. Made in America is a great brand. A survey by NPD Group showed 80% of shoppers said that the Made in America label is important to them to some degree. But when it comes to actually buying, nobody checks the label. It's all about the price tag. Right. In that same survey, less than a quarter of shoppers said they'd pay more for something made in the USA all or most of the time. Half said it would depend on what they were buying, like they'd be more willing to pay for locally grown food than they would for locally made apparel. So while American apparel manufacturing might grow in the next few years, it'll probably be through automation. The workers in those plants will be highly skilled machine workers, not necessarily people who are sitting over sewing machines. We're almost certainly never going back to the heyday of the garment district. That's it for this episode of Material World. Thanks for listening. If you want more Material World, check out iTunes, Pocket Casts, the Bloomberg Terminal, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you like what you heard, please rate and review the show on iTunes. It helps other people find us. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at LC Rupp and Jenny's at Jenny M. Kaplan. For the latest looks from American Giant and Not Standard, check them out on Instagram. Just like they sound, but not as with the K. Check out Pietro Rivoli's book, The Travels of a T-Shirt in the Global Economy, on Amazon. This episode was produced by Liz Smith and Magnus Henriksen. Alec McCabe is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks. Question, am I the one who put all this in, in point eighteen font? I can't figure it out. Did you put it in such big font? Oh, <laughs> you're an old person. You know, you can just zoom in, right? Like, you don't have to...